The following is a message from our 10-week series, Hashtag Happy. For more, visit LinworthRoadChurch.com. Well, again, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Nick Carruthers. I'm one of the pastors here at Linworth. And as uh, Rich said, today we are starting a new series uh, that we have entitled Hashtag Happy. And, you know, we've been having some fun with the series title here around the office, and, and it's been somewhat at the expense of Pastor Chris, our, our lead pastor. And uh, it's because the poor guy, he, he doesn't even have a smartphone. And so as we were talking about this series title, uh, one of our staff members was concerned that, yeah, that Chris might not be able to pull this off genuinely. And, and uh, so we've been teasing him, and, and we were telling our life groups and and uh, one of our life group leaders, Ross King, yelled out, he's like, yeah, the series is going to end up being called Pound Sign Happy. And uh, so if you're under 25, you probably don't even realize that long before it was a hashtag, it was solely referred to as a pound sign. And so uh, all kidding aside, we are excited about this series. And, you know, based on some of your reactions uh, when we first announced it, we know that some of you are excited as well. However, though, uh, at the same time, we realize that there are perhaps others of you who uh, are maybe at the very least skeptical. And maybe you're skeptical just of the very idea or maybe just the title bothers you. And I just want you to know that that's okay. <laughs> and uh, maybe you're skeptical because you've been taught or, or you've heard along the way something like this, that, that Christians aren't supposed to be happy, they're supposed to be holy, as if somehow those two things can't coexist or as if they're opposed to one another. Or perhaps maybe your hang-up has more to do with the actual word happy. Maybe you think Christians shouldn't try to be happy, they're, they're, but rather they're to seek joy, right? Because it's all about joy, not happiness. Or maybe for others of you, your, uh, your hang-up has been more with how you've seen different segments of Christianity take this word, take this concept and twist it. To mean something like that essentially believers are supposed to always, without exception, be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And yet your Christian experience has left you sick, poor, and depressed. And so far from healthy, wealthy, and happy, that has not been your experience. And so perhaps your hang-up this morning is you've been exposed to some false teaching or you've seen it uh, abused in the church. And so because of that, because we recognize that there's some baggage or perhaps some hurdles to uh, climb when it comes to a series like this, I thought before we dive into the topic this morning and the next few weeks and months that, that I would uh, just first start off by, by clarifying and by stating very clearly what it is we are not saying nor what we are promoting in this series. And the first thing you need to understand is that we are not saying, nor are we promoting what some have uh, referred to as the prosperity gospel. And in case you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, it, it essentially promises that Christians can achieve happiness through continuous health, wealth, and success if only they have enough faith. And you see, the problem with the prosperity gospel is the same problem with most false teaching and false gospels, and that is that it, it contains some measure of truth. Or in other words, it contains some half-truths. And so, does God heal people who are sick? Yes. Does He heal them every time that we pray? No. Does God promise to provide for us materially? Yes. Does that mean at times believers won't struggle financially or that we're all going to be millionaires if we just have enough faith? No. 
And so that's the first qualifier. This is not a prosperity gospel message or series. Secondly, though, we're also not promoting or advocating what in the past has been called the power of positive thinking. Now, again, were there some positives and even some biblical ideas sprinkled into that movement? Yes. But were there also some major holes and even some unbiblical ideas in that movement? And the answer is yes. And so, no, this is not the same as the power of positive thinking. And it's important that you understand that because some of the things we're going to share this morning uh, may remind you or may seem similar, but I can assure you that they are different. And then the last qualifier here before we dive in is, and it's very important that you understand this, that as we go throughout this series, that, that you understand that we are not saying that Christians can't or that many don't suffer from depression. In fact, the idea for this series, and in many ways the content for it, is, is based on a book called The Happy Christian. And that book was written by a, a pastor and a professor named David Murray. And that same man, a few years earlier, wrote a book called Christians Get Depressed Too. And so again, as we in this series talk about happiness and even the ways that you and I should expect and even choose happiness, it's important that you understand that we are not saying that Christians can't and that many don't suffer from depression. In fact, that would be silly uh, for us to do, particularly since I have on multiple occasions publicly shared that, that I myself have, have struggled and experienced depression in the past. And so, again, that's not what we're saying. And so with that as a kind of preface and qualifier, uh, what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to first look at and to try to define happiness and then talk a little bit about how our culture has negatively impacted us and, and therefore impacted our happiness. And then I want to look at Psalm 77 as an example of something that you and I can do practically to increase our joy and our happiness here in this life. But before we move on, let's pray and thank the Lord for being with us. Father, thank you that you're here this morning. Thank you that, uh, Lord, your word is alive and active God, thank you for the, uh, just this body, this church that you have uh, brought together. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would be with us, you would guide us. Lord, that you would make your word come alive. And we ask this for your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so first off, what is happiness? Well, I think it's one of those emotions that, that dictionaries have a hard time defining. But I think it's one of those things that all of us, when we have experienced it ourselves or when we've seen it in others, we, we can recognize it. But if you go and you take the time and you Google the word happiness, you're going to be told by Google that happiness is the state of being happy. And so thank you, Google, for that. That was super helpful. Well, if you play their game and you change it to happy, you'll then be told that it's a feeling of pleasure or contentment. And so that's a little better, still not super helpful. What about Merriam-Webster? What does Webster say? Well, Webster says that it's feeling pleasure and enjoyment because of your life and your situation, etc. And so according to Webster, it's a feeling of pleasure that's based on life circumstances. Now that's probably a little closer to how we're used to thinking about it and certainly how the world would define it. What about Christians? How would a Christian define happiness? Well, according to the Dictionary of Bible Themes, happiness is a state of pleasure or joy experienced both by people and by God. And that true happiness derives from a secure and settled knowledge of God and a rejoicing of His works and covenant faithfulness. And so that's not too bad. 
Uh, what perhaps just one more. David Murray, again, the guy who wrote the book, The Happy Christian, he has defined Christian happiness this way. It's a God-centered, God-glorifying, and God-given sense of God's love that is produced by a right relationship to God in Christ and that produces loving service to God and others. I don't know if you could follow that. It was a little wordy. (laughs) Uh, But what I like about what he said there is this, that he essentially ties happiness back to the source of happiness, which is God. And really what he's saying is that happiness is a feeling, uh, an emotion that we get when we truly realize, when we understand God's love for us, and therefore we understand the salvation that he offers. And that idea is something really you see all throughout the Bible. But one verse that I've been thinking about a lot and meditating on as we've been leading up to this series is, is Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine. Now, the context of Deuteronomy 33 is that uh, the, the Israelites are about to finally head into the promised land. Uh, the, the first generation has all died off, and, and so their kids, the, the new generation, is about to enter in. And Moses is giving them one uh, final speech, some final instructions. And in verse 29, it's the last recorded words of Moses uh, before he dies. And he says this. He says, Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. And again, I know that some of us have a hang-up with the word happy because we have somehow come to believe that it's less spiritual than joy. And while there are perhaps some differences between the two words, at a basic level they are essentially synonyms for each other. And I really like what John Piper says to this point. He says... If you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its use of the language of happiness and joy, contentment, and satisfaction. In other words, what Piper is saying there is this, that in the original languages, both Hebrew and Greek, those words are used interchangeably, and therefore we have to be careful not to misjudge or, or misread those words when we come to the English. And then, you know, Randy Alcorn, a, another writer and speaker, wrote a, a book recently called Happiness, and, and he dedicates a couple chapters to this idea, and, and really what he argues is this kind of uh, way that we've differentiated it between the two words is really a, a new phenomenon in, in Christian history, and, and really if you look throughout the past, that distinction was not made, and, and definitely when you get to the, to the original words in the Bible, those distinctions aren't there. And so getting back to the verse, I, I, what this verse is saying is, is Moses is saying, he's saying, happy are you, O Israel. And really what Moses is saying is, is not only should God's people, and by God's people I mean those who have been rescued and saved by him, not only should they be happy, but that they should be the happiest people in the world. And, and that is because who is like them? Who else has been saved and rescued and in relationship with God? And so if that was true of the, the, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, how much more is that the case for us as Christians who have been forgiven, who have been saved, uh, as Nick shared, who have been adopted into the family of God? And yet I think if we're being honest, most of us would have to admit that by and large our lives are not characterized or defined as happy. 
And most of us certainly wouldn't consider ourselves to be the happiest people in the world. And that's why I think for some of you, when you hear a, a title of a book like The Happy Christian, or, or when you heard the title of this series, there, there was a part of you that was skeptical, perhaps even a little bit cynical. And because again, the, the concept or the idea just seems so foreign to anything that you have experienced lately. Again, that idea of a happy Christian for many of us sounds like a contradiction. When we think about our, our jobs or, or what's going on in our families or when we look at our country or, or for many of us when we look at our own walks with the Lord, happy is not the word we would use to describe how we feel. You know, when someone asks you how you feel, many of us would say something like, well, I'm, I'm hanging in there or I'm doing all right. Or, you know, I've just been, particularly if you're a man, you might say something like, I've just been really busy. Which, FYI, man, I've been learning this recently. Busy is not an emotion. I don't know if you got that, but, but so the, this will be helpful for you, so pay attention. The next time your wife asks you how you feel, do not respond with just busy, right? Because when someone asks you a fact, you respond with a fact. When someone asks you an emotion, you respond with an emotion. And so, you know, that was new to me. I've been learning, and so... That's for free. You can have that. But I want you to know, I can sympathize with those of you who feel skeptical, with those of you who feel cynical. In fact, I thought about walking up here after the meet and greet and just waiting till y'all got quiet, and I realized that would actually never happen because you guys like to talk. But, but I thought about just standing up here and saying, and just waiting and saying, my name is Nick Carruthers, and I am a pessimist. You know, kind of the AA model of confession. And while that is true, I like to think that I am a recovering pessimist. But I'm not going to lie and pretend like I haven't had a few creative nicknames in the past. Things like Negative Nick or uh, uh, Debbie Downer or my wife's personal favorite, Johnny Raincloud. And so <laughs> I've had, again, some creative nicknames. And, and in the past, I've, I've tried to defend myself from such horrible nicknames by, by saying no no, I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist, right? Because that's what us pessimists say to defend ourselves. Because it sounds so much better. But the truth is, is my natural inclination is to be negative. It's to be pessimistic. And again, I'm, I'm recovering. I'm, I'm getting out of that. I'm trusting the Lord for that. But the thing that bothers me is I feel like because of how negative our culture has become... That that mentality, that that attitude, it has crept into the church and it has kind of become the norm for many Christians. And again, it's not surprising given the amount of negative overload that is dumped on us on a daily basis. From things like the news, to social media, to, to politics, to even our own work environments. You know, many of us, we go to work and all we hear is just negative talk all day long. People talking bad about each other, talking bad about the boss. And it affects us. But if Moses is correct, if we, the people of God, the ones who have been saved and rescued by him, if that in fact is our identity, then he is right. We should be the happiest people alive, regardless of what's going on in our world, our country, or even our own homes. You see, here's the thing. Things really have changed drastically in our nation and in our culture. And we can debate whether those changes are good or bad. 
But based on recent polls and surveys, it appears at least that, that most Americans are pessimistic about our country and where we are headed, and certainly this year's election isn't helping. And yes, as Pastor Chris shared last week, we do have a role to play. But by and large, the, way, but by and large, the things in our culture are, are things that we cannot change. But we can change how we think about them. There are things happening in, in my life, in your life right now, that we cannot change. But we can change how we respond to them. And that is in, really ma- in, in many ways what this series is all about. It's about changing the way that we think and therefore changing how we feel and how we respond. And the first area we want to tackle this morning is, is the area when it comes to our facts and our feelings. You see, when it comes to our moods, or in other words, uh, how we feel, there are many things that factor in, and, and particularly when it comes to happiness. There, there's things like the weather, right? And so today's a beautiful day, and so uh, a lot of us walked in here feeling a little happier than we would otherwise be. Uh, sports results, right? If the Buckeyes would have lost Lester- yesterday, there would be about half of you in this room right now. And then you, that's just true. Sports results affect some of us. Uh, things like our bank accounts, right? When the, when the account is up, we feel good. When the account is down, we're down. Things like our health. You know, for many of us, we get a simple cold and it just ruins our month, you know. And, and uh, other things, our body chemistry, uh, how well we have been sleeping. But here's the interesting thing. Medical doctors and psychologists are now finding that none of those factors are as influential as our thoughts. And especially our thinking patterns and habits. You see, I think most of us assume, like what Webster Dictionary, when it defined happiness, most of us assume that that happiness is based on our life circumstances. So in other words, we believe that if we make more money, have more friends, or, or if we get in shape, or finally lose that weight, then and only then will we be happy. But the crazy thing is, is that scientists, and again doctors, they've discovered that improvements in life circumstances only account for about 10%. Of our happiness. The other thing they've discovered recently is that, that about 50% of our happiness or lack of happiness can be blamed or, or even explained on, with our genetics. And, and so, again, how we're wired, those things we have inherited. And so, you add those two things up and you get about 60% of what affects our happiness. So, what about that remaining 40? Well, those same scientists tell us that the remaining percentage is all based on our daily choices in regards to what we think about. And what we do, those behaviors. And so if that is true, if they're correct, then what you and I think about is extremely important. You see, the truth is, is that negative thoughts produce negative emotions. In fact, some have argued that negative emotions are the number one cause of depression. And if that wasn't bad enough, they're also finding that it damages and affects things like our our endocrine and our immune systems. Which again, some of you, we, uh, back in the spring, we had a, some community workshops and we invited this endocrinologist named Dr. Malarkey from OSU and, and that's really what he talked about. How these negative uh, thoughts and emotions, how they produce uh, like physical uh, symptoms in our bodies and so they're creating disease and all kinds of, of horrible things and so this is serious stuff. 
But before we move on and look at ways that we can combat negative thinking, I I first want to walk through some of those damaging thinking patterns that I think many of us are tempted by that that produce negative thinking. And and I got these from uh, from the book, The Happy Christian. And the first one is this. It's what he calls black or white thinking. Now this for me is one I've struggled with in the past, but, but basically it's where you tend to think in extreme black or white categories. In other words, shades of gray do not exist in your mind. Even though you're, I think they say our brains gray matter, but in your mind there's no gray. It's just black or white. And so an example he gives in the book is this. He says, uh, he says uh, so maybe, one, or maybe my sermon goes badly one Sunday. And I conclude, I was never called to be in ministry. Or the fleeting thought while he's praying passes through his mind. God doesn't exist. I can't be a Christian if I ever think like that, can I? And so whether preaching or praying, the extreme conclusion begins to drag down our moods. A second damaging thought pattern is called generalizing. Generalizing is where you experience something horrible, and then you're convinced that something similar will happen again and again. And so the example, another example would be you ask somebody out on a date and they turn you down and you just, well, I'm never going to do that again because I, I might as well get used to being single because I'm sure if I ever did that again, it would just turn out bad like it did before. And so we generalize. A third one is called filtering. Now this is one that I'm really, really good at. And, and basically filtering is where you pick out the negative in every situation and you think about it to the exclusion of everything else. In other words, you filter out everything positive and you find everything negative. And you know, as, one of, as part of being on staff here, one of my roles is uh, we have a weekly programming meeting. And, and in that time, we review the previous Sunday service and then we plan ahead for the next week. And as part of that review of the previous week, I have to fight so hard not to just focus on all the mistakes that we made or, or the, the, you know, the speaker that was crackling or, or whatever. It's a, it's a real struggle to only focus on those few negatives to the exclusion of all of the good, all of the positive things, all of the things that went well. And so for some of you, that's a struggle. You know, another one for me is I'll ask my kids to clean their room. You know, we have a three-year-old or a five-year-old and a three-year-old and then some babies, but uh, <laughs> um, so I'll ask the five and three-year-old to clean their room, and then I'll come up after they've been up there, and they'll be so proud, they'll be so excited to show me, and, and I walk up, and, and, and what do I see? Well, I see the sock that they left there, and I see the, uh, the, the one toy under the bed that they forgot, and, and I'm tempted to say, I thought I told you to clean your room, even though they've picked up, you know, hundreds of toys or whatever, and they've tried to make their beds, but I don't see that. And so some of us are like this. We filter. What about transforming? This is, this is where you manage to transform a positive experience into a negative one. And so for some of you, you'll walk out today, and someone will say, oh, I really like your hair, and, and you'll immediately think in your mind, I wonder what they're after. I bet they're going to ask me to help them move or something, you know. You, you somehow have transformed this positive experience into a negative one. What about mind reading? Any mind readers out there? Thankfully, this is one that I don't struggle with. But, but mind reading is where you think that you know everyone's true intentions and motives. And so you know exactly what people think about you. And so the example that I thought was funny he gave in the book is... When you passed by me in the mall without stopping to speak, I immediately knew it was because you hated me. 
I heard later that you broke your glasses and were on your way to lens crafters, but I know better. Do any of you do that? Do you mind read? Do you, do you just, you know, you just, you, you believe that this person thinks bad about you when you've never had that conversation with them? What about fortune telling? So not only do some of you read minds, you can also tell fortunes. And, and fortune telling is basically self-fulfilling prophecy. You think something's going to turn out badly. You think so negatively about something coming up. And sure enough, it turns out badly. And so maybe it's a job interview. You think, oh, I just know I'm going to misspeak. I'm, I'm probably going to end up sneezing all over the guy or whatever. And sure enough, all of that happens and you don't get the job. And so you fortune tell. Uh, just a few others. One's called telescoping. This is where some of us, we focus on, on sins in our past in such a way that it leads to present feelings of guilt, shame, and fear. And so you know how a telescope works, right? You, you, you turn it upside down and, and you look at something that's far away, that's far off in the distance, and yet by the telescope you make it seem a lot closer than it actually is. And so some of us do that. Uh, the next one is probably my biggest struggle. That's perfecting. This is where you think, I should, I ought, I should, I ought. And you uh, constantly put all of this self-imposed pressure to be perfect, to reach unrealistic goals. But because we live in a fallen world and, and we are not perfect, we consistently feel frustrated. We feel like failures. And so if you're anything like me, you're always striving for the perfect house, the perfect kids, the perfect yard, the perfect sermon, and on and on it goes. Those things never realized, and we are never satisfied, and it's depressing, and it's exhausting. And that is all produced by a wrong thinking about ourselves and about the world that we live in. And then lastly, personalizing. This one I, I think is maybe not as common for adults, but uh, it, it's definitely true with some kids. And, and that is, uh, you incorrectly think that you are somehow responsible or the cause of some bad event. And so maybe it was your parents' divorce or, or your family's economic woes or, or something completely different. In extreme cases, it's, it's where, uh, you know, you have a bunch of relatives die in a row and you somehow convince yourself that it's somehow your fault, that you somehow were the, the, the cause of it. And so you personalize, you take blame for things you shouldn't. And so now that we're all depressed and we all have identified the things wrong with us, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? Well, the good news is, is, is we can change the way that we think. We can actually change our brains. We can, we can change our thoughts so that we can overcome and even stop these negative thinking patterns. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of grace here in this uh, teaching because I'm not a doctor. In fact, I had to cheat my way through biology in school. But uh, basically, scientists and doctors have discovered what they call neuroplasticity. Which basically means that there are many parts of our brains which are changeable. Or you could even say plastic-like. You see, they used to think that our brains after puberty didn't really change much. But with the advanced technology and MRIs and things like that, they can actually uh, show and prove that our brains change all throughout our lives. And part of that is there's these, what happens inside of our brains is we create these electrical and chemical pathways with our thoughts. In other words, we can create these pathways, and they, they at times become like brain ruts, right? Have you ever uh, seen a rut uh, in a, you know, a tire creates a rut? And um, so one of the things I was thinking about is recently Faith and I were driving somewhere, and, and we were talking, and I wasn't really paying attention. 
And we were on this uh, one freeway where normally we would head uh, this way, uh, but this time I needed to go that way. But because we were talking, I just, my brain took over and we went the, the wrong way. And uh, it was frustrating because we were running late uh, somewhere. But, but what happened there is, is my brain was like, all right, this guy's not paying attention and we're going to get killed. And so let's just go ahead and go the way that we normally do. And so it's kind of like muscle memory. Again, our, our brain's getting these ruts, these pathways. And, and the thing is, is the more you travel down these mental pathways, the faster and easier they become to where eventually they feel automatic. Now, that's good news when it comes to typing or riding a bike, but it's bad news if you have developed, if you have developed negative, damaging thinking patterns. But again, the good news is, is that our brains are changeable. We can create new positive brain pathways. And if we stick with it long enough, we can actually change our brains in such a way that they become the new default. Now, I don't know how this is hitting some of you. Maybe you have checked out or maybe you're thinking, man, this sure sounds like positive psychology. Or maybe you're thinking, I thought I came to church this morning. What's this guy talking about? Well, here's the thing. Modern science and psychology have finally caught up to what God has been saying through the Bible for thousands of years. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, too, he said this. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, Paul, through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood this, that we have the ability to have our lives transformed. And we do this by renewing our minds. You see, Paul understood very clearly that if we change the way that we think, then we can change the way that we feel and the way that we live. But this is a process. This idea of renewing our minds, it is not automatic. In fact, what's automatic is to default to what the world is like, to default to think like the world thinks. This is a fight. This, this fight of renewing our minds, it requires effort. And again, it is a process. It won't happen overnight. You see... Some of those ruts in our minds, those, those have been uh, deeply ingrained in our brains. But what the Bible says is that we can change those pathways. We can change those ruts by renewing our minds. And surprise, surprise, science has finally realized this too. And while science is a few thousand years late, to be fair, there, there are some differences between how science and Scripture would, would talk about how we do this how, and, and what needs to be transformed and how we do it. But even still, there's some similarities. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to look at Psalm 77. And so uh, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page uh, 488. Now, Psalm 77 is just one example. There are many we could have turned to. But, but basically, what we see in Psalm 77 is a way that we can change our negative thought patterns and emotions into positive ones. And it's essentially a six-step process with six questions. And so, uh, we'll begin to read the psalm here, and then I'm going to stop and ask a few questions along the way. So, starting in verse 1, it says this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, and the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. 
I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And so let's ask a couple questions here. Number one, in light of this psalm, what are the facts? Well, we don't know a ton of details, just simply Asaph, the psalmist, he tells us that there is a day of trouble. So apparently there's some bad things happening in his life right now. Uh, Question number two, what are Asaph's thoughts about these facts? Well, based on verse 7 and 9, he he seems to think that God has rejected him, that God doesn't love him, that he has been unfaithful, that God has broken his promises. And so those are his thoughts about the facts. What about uh, his feelings? What is he feeling? Well, he seems to be almost inconsolable. He's he's overwhelmed. He's he's perplexed. He feels abandoned by God. And so number four, can Asaph change the facts? Well, we don't know for sure, but it sure seems like he can. At least he doesn't indicate that he's able to change his day of trouble. And so question number five, can he change his thoughts about the facts? So let's keep reading verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. And yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so again, the question number five, can he change his thoughts about the facts? Well, he does. Starting in verse 11, Asaph begins to think new thoughts. He essentially says, enough is enough. I'm going to think differently about this situation. He begins to force himself to remember who God is to remember God's character, to remember his ways, to to remember what God has done in the past. How God had done these amazing miracles and and specifically how when things looked like they were at their worst, when Israel was penned against the Red Sea and against the coming Egyptian army, that when, again, all hope was lost, it was there that God had brought them. No, that was God's plan all along. He says, your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. You see, Asaph isn't just thinking better, he's believing better about who God is. And so step number six, what is he feeling now? Well, Asaph doesn't explicitly say, but based on the way that he ends, you can be sure that he has changed his tone. And he has changed his feelings about God. And in verse 13 and 14, he he goes from criticizing God to praising him. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. I think it's fair to say that Asaph has gone through the process of renewing his mind. 
And so if that worked for Asaph, you, you may be asking yourself, yeah, but will it work in my life? Well, I had the same worry, and so uh, I, I recently tried the, the six questions out on my wife, which usually is, it doesn't go well, but it, this time it did. And, and, uh, and most of you know, again, I mentioned earlier, we have four kids. We have uh, four kids, five and under. Uh, we have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and, and four-month-old twins. And so because of that fact, because of that reality, sometimes when I get home from work, my dear wife has had a hard day, to say the least. And so about a week and a half ago, she had one of these hard days. And so I asked permission in that moment. I said, uh, Faithy, can I try out something on you? Can I uh, ask you some questions? And so she agreed. And so I said, all right, starting number one, in light of your hard day, what are the facts? And so we said, well, we have four kids. We're trying to homeschool them. They are sometimes insane. And uh, at the same time, she had taken on this complicated sewing project. And so that's the fact. Step two, I said, what are your thoughts about these facts? She said, I'm not sure I can keep doing this. I'm ready to quit or at least go insane. And so those were her thoughts about those facts. I said, all right, step three, what are your feelings? She said, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I'm, I'm even angry. I'm, I'm sad. And on and on she went, and in that moment I realized women are really good at this question here when it comes to what are your feelings, and I had to stop her. I'm like, okay, I get it, I get it, all right, all right. So question number four, I said, can we change any of these facts? And so just so you know, these next two questions, four and five, this is where a, a spouse or a close friend can really help. And so in this question I chimed in, I said, well... We really can't change the fact that we have four kids unless we give one of them away or sell them, and I think that's illegal, and so that, that one's stuck. I said, but we actually can change the fact that we're homeschooling them. We don't have to do this. No one has a gun to our head. We, we said we wanted to do this, but we don't have to. And I said, do you want to change that? Do you want to not homeschool? And she said, no. And then I was like, okay, uh, you don't actually have to do this sewing project. You could uh, just call the person up and say, look, I'm sorry, I thought I could do it, but in fact, it's, it's too much with everything I have going on in my life right now, and so I don't, you don't have to do it. And I said, do you want to do that? And she said, no. And so we actually discovered that there were some facts that we could change and others that we couldn't, and so we went on to step five. I said, okay, babe, can you change your thoughts about the facts then? And so again, I stepped in to try to offer some perspective, some encouragement. And I was like, first off, you are a great mom. You love our kids so well. And secondly, the truth is we actually have some pretty great kids. I know they're crazy, but they actually are pretty sweet kids, if we're being honest. And I said, and, and to beat it all, we have two boys and two girls. Who wouldn't want to have, you know, equal numbers of, of kids? You know, two boys, two girls. I was like, you got to think of those families who have four boys, and they're like, all right, let's just go number five. Let's get the girl. Ah, number boy, number five, you know. It's just like, <laughs> we give up. We're done. Um, I was like, that didn't happen to us. We had two boys and two girls. And I was like, more than that, we have twins. You know how many people would die and would just love to have the opportunity to have twins? And we get to experience that. And I was like, as well, you are amazing at sewing. You're so talented. I've seen you do things with sewing that I never even thought were possible. 
And so we went on to step six. I said, how are you feeling now? And she smiled and she said better and she thanked me. And, and we went about our day. And, and so again, in case you're taking notes and you want to try this, and, and I would encourage you, this is the application of the teaching, to, to do this next time you are faced with some, some discouraging thoughts, next time you are feeling unhappy, walk through these six questions. Number one, what are the facts? Number two, what are my thoughts about the facts? Number three, what are my feelings? Number four, can I change the facts? Number five, can I change my thoughts about the facts? And then number six, ask yourself, what am I feeling now? And I know some of you are probably still skeptical, but really this is a a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, and particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 42, 43, Psalm 73, and I'm sure others. You see it in Job 19 and Habakkuk 3. You even see it in Lamentations 3. You don't see Paul explicitly teach how to do this, but you know that he had to do something similar like this to be able to write such encouraging letters from prison. You see him over and over again focus on the positives even when there was plenty to be negative about. The one exception maybe is 2 Corinthians where he starts to get a little negative, but even there he turns it around. And you know, you think about Philippians. Again, uh, Frank mentioned that. He wrote that from jail. And then another one, Ephesians. Nick mentioned that. Think about Ephesians. And that first chapter, he's talking about how we've been adopted in Christ, how we've been chosen before the foundations of the world. He says, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what he's thinking about all the while being chained to a dungeon, dirty floor. You see, here's the thing. You and I are never going to live joyful, happy lives if we keep letting negative thoughts roll around in our minds. And no, this is not going to come easy for some of us. And no, it won't change overnight. But you and I can begin a process by which we change the way that we think. We can get into a new habit of renewing our minds. You see, we can focus on who God is, on what He has done, on the promises that He has made to us. In other words, we can think new thoughts. And as I look out this morning at you guys, I, I don't know all of you and all of what you're facing, but I do know a lot of you. And I know that some of you are facing some pretty hard facts today. There's some things going on in your life that you can't change, even if you wanted to. But my goal, my desire, and I believe it's the Lord's desire, is that you would understand that you can walk out of here this morning with some hope that you can change. You can change your thoughts about those feelings. You can change your thoughts and even your feelings about those facts that you can't change. And I believe the Lord wants you to leave this morning understanding some additional facts, things like that God is for you, He's not against you. That this moment, that this light momentary affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. He wants you to understand, as it says in Romans 8, that, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He wants you to understand that He is working out everything for your good. He wants you to understand, as it says in the book of John, that that no one can snatch us from the Father's hands. He wants you to understand that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth, and when he comes back, he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. You see, as believers, we have these incredible, amazing facts on our side about who God is, about what he has promised, and what he's going to do. And so, let's close, let's pray, let's ask the Lord to, to seal these truths into our heart this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for how it has the power to renew our minds, how it has the power to change our lives and, in fact, even even produce positive emotions in us. 
Father, I pray for my, my friends here, Lord, that you would just help us to, to uh, begin to put into practice this, this way of thinking. Lord, that we would begin to think and force ourselves to think new thoughts about who you are, about what you have done, and about what you have promised to us, Lord. And so, God, we need your help. We need the Spirit's help to be able to, to put these things into practice. And Father, we just ask now that you would take this, these tithes, these offerings that we've offered to you, and use them to, to farther advance your kingdom, both here in Columbus and around the world. And we pray these things in your Son's glorious, perfect name. In Jesus Christ, amen.